Chapter 23 Death to Sin Through Christ Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 6, 11. The connection of this passage will help us to understand its meaning. Near the end of the previous chapter, Paul had said, The law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5, 20 and 21. He speaks here of sin as being a reigning principle or monarch, and of grace also as reigning. Then in chapter 6 he says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 6, 1 and 11. You observe here that Paul speaks of the man, the old sinner, as being crucified with Christ, so destroyed by the moral power of the cross that he who once was a sinner shall no longer serve sin. When he speaks of our being planted or buried with Christ, we must, of course, understand him as using figures of speech to teach the great truth that the gospel redeems the soul from sin. Just as Christ died for sin, so, by a general analogy, we die to sin. On the other hand, just as he rose to a new and infinitely glorious life, so the convert rises to a new and blessed life of purity and holiness. But referring specifically to our text, let me say that the language used in our translation would seem to mean that our death to sin is precisely analogous to Christ's death for sin. But this is not the case. We are dead to sin in the sense that it is no longer to be our master, implying that it has been in power over us. But sin was never in power over Jesus Christ. It was never his master. Christ died to abolish its power over us, not to abolish any power of sin over himself, for it had no power over him. The analogy between Christ's death in relation to sin and our dying to sin goes to this extent and no farther. He died for the sake of making an atonement for sin and of creating a moral power that should be effective to kill the love of sin in all hearts. However, the Christian dies unto sin in the sense of being divorced from all sympathy with sin and set free from its control. I will now proceed to comment upon the text itself, and will consider the following questions. Roman numeral 1. What does it mean to be dead unto sin in the sense of the text? Roman numeral 2. What does it mean to be alive unto God? Roman numeral 3. What does it mean to consider ourselves to be dead unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord? Roman numeral 4. What does it mean to be alive unto God through Jesus Christ? Roman numeral 5. What is implied in the exhortation of our text? Roman numeral 1. What does it mean to be dead unto sin 
in the sense of the text. Being dead to sin must obviously be the opposite of being dead in sin. Being dead in sin must undeniably be a state of entire sinfulness, a state in which the soul is dead to all good through the power of sin over it. However, being dead to sin means to be indifferent to its attractions, beyond the reach of its influence, as fully removed from its influences as the dead are from the objects of the senses in this world. Just as he who is dead in the natural sense has nothing more to do with earthly things, so he who is dead to sin has nothing to do any more with sin's attractions or with sinning itself. Roman numeral 2. What does it mean to be alive unto God? To be alive unto God means to be full of life for Him. It means to be entirely active and on the alert to do His will. It means to make our whole lives a ceaseless offering to Him, constantly delivering up ourselves to Him and His service so that we may glorify His name and serve His interests. Roman numeral 3. What does it mean to consider ourselves dead indeed unto sin? The word translated as reckon is sometimes translated as count or consider. Abraham's faith was counted unto him for righteousness, Romans 4.3. In this passage, then, reckon must mean to believe or Consider yourselves dead indeed unto sin. Count this to be the case. Regard this as truly your relation to sin. You are completely dead to it. It will have no more dominion over you. A careful examination of the passages where this original word is used will show that this is its usual and natural sense. This also gives us the true idea of gospel faith. Embracing personally the salvation that is by faith in Jesus Christ. But more about this later. Roman numeral 4. What does it mean to be alive unto God through Jesus Christ? To be alive unto God through Jesus Christ simply means that you are to expect to be saved by Jesus Christ and to depend on this salvation as your own. You are to consider yourself as completely dead to sin and as a result brought into life and peace in Christ Jesus. Roman numeral 5. What is implied in the exhortation of our text? It is implied that there is an adequate provision for this expectation and for realizing these blessings in fact. If there were no basis for realizing this, the command would be most absurd. A command requiring us to consider ourselves dead indeed unto sin and alive unto God would be completely illogical if there were no probability of the thing, if no provision were made for our coming into such a relationship to sin on the one hand and to God through Christ on the other. If these blessings could not be reasonably expected, there could be no rational basis for the expectation. If it were not reasonable to expect it, then to command us to expect it would be plainly unreasonable. Who does not see that the very command implies that there is a foundation laid and adequate provision made for the condition required? What is implied in complying with this command? 1. We must believe such a thing is possible 
we must believe that it is possible that through Christ we can live in the required manner, that we can avoid sin, that we can desist from sinning, give it up and abandon it altogether, and put it away from us forever. There can be no such thing as an intelligent compliance with this command except as it is supported by this belief that it is possible. 2. It implies that the mind regards the state required as a possible one, not merely as true in theory, and not just as good philosophy, but as actually made possible by adequate grace that is adapted to the laws of mind and to the actual moral condition of lost men. 3. It implies that we cease from all expectation of attaining this state of ourselves and by our own independent, unaided efforts. We do not begin to receive by grace until we renounce all expectation of attaining by natural works. It is only when empty of self that we begin to be filled with Christ. 4. It implies that there is a present willingness to be saved from sin. We must actually renounce all sin as such. That is, we must renounce sin because it is sin and for what it is. The mind must take this position. I can have nothing more to do with sinning, for God hates sin and I am to live from this moment on and forever to please and glorify Him. My soul is committed with its strength of purpose to please God and do His will. 5. It implies also an entire commitment of your whole situation to Jesus Christ, not only for present salvation, but for all future salvation from sin. This is absolutely essential. It must always be the vital step. The central act in this great work of salvation from sin. 6. It also implies the closing of the mind against temptation in such a sense that the mind truly expects to live a life purely devoted to God. This is the same sort of closing of the mind that takes place under a faithful marriage contract. The Bible everywhere keeps this representation prominent. Christians are represented as the bride of Christ. They stand in a relationship to Him that is closely similar to that of a bride to her husband. Therefore, when they commit their whole hearts to Him, placing their affections in Him and trusting Him for all good, their hearts are strongly closed against temptation. We see this principle illustrated in the merely human relationship. When a man and a woman are solemnly betrothed in mutual honest devotion, there is no longer any thought of letting the eye wander or the heart go abroad for a fresh object of interest and love. The heart is settled, willingly and by pledged faith determined, and this fact shuts out the power of temptation almost entirely. It makes it comparatively an easy matter to keep the heart safely above the influence of temptation to unfaithfulness. Before the sacred vows are taken, individuals may be excused for looking around and making any observations or inquiries, but never after the solemn vow is made. After the parties have become one by vow of marriage, never to be broken, there is to be no more question as to a better choice, no further thought about changing the relationship or withdrawing the heart's affections. No wavering is acceptable now. 
the pledges made for everlasting faithfulness, settled once and forever. This is God's own illustration, and certainly none can be more appropriate or more powerful. It shows how the Christian should look upon sin and upon all temptation to sin. He must say, Get away from my heart forever. I am married to Jesus Christ. How then can I pursue other lovers? My mind is forever settled. It rests in the deep peace of one whose affections are promised and settled to wander no more. Sin? I cannot think of yielding to its temptations any longer. I cannot consider the question for a moment. I can have nothing to do with sinning. My mind is settled. The question is forever closed, and I can no more allow the temptation to small sins than to great sins. I can no longer consent to give my heart to worldly idols than to commit murder. I did not enter upon Christianity as upon an experiment to see how I might like it. No more than a wife or husband can take on themselves the marriage vow as an experiment. No, my whole soul has committed itself to Jesus Christ with as much expectation of being faithful forever as the most faithful husband and wife have of fulfilling their vows in all faithfulness until death will part them. Christians in this state of mind no more expect to commit small sins than great sins. Hating all sin for its own sake and for its hatefulness to Christ, any sin, no matter how small, is to them as murder. Therefore, if the heart is ever afterward seduced and overcome by temptation, it is entirely contrary to their expectation and purpose. It was not embraced in their plan by any means, but was distinctly excluded. It was not deliberately indulged in, but broke in on them unexpectedly through the perspective of old habits or associations. Again, the state of mind in question implies that the Christian knows where his great strength lies. He knows it does not lie in works of fasting, giving alms, making prayers, or doing public or private duties. Nothing of this sort, not even in resolutions or any self-originated efforts, but only in Christ received by faith. He no more expects spiritual life of himself apart from Christ than a man in his senses would expect to fly by swinging his arms in the air. Deep in his soul lies the conviction that his whole strength lies in Christ alone. When people are so enlightened as truly to understand this subject, then to expect less than this from Jesus Christ as the result of committing the whole soul to him for full salvation, is practically to reject him as a revealed Savior. It does not honor him for what he is. It does not honor the revelations he has made of himself in his word by accepting him as he is presented there. Consider what the first element of this salvation is. It is not being saved from hell, but being saved from sin. Salvation from punishment is quite a secondary thing in every sense. It is only a result of being saved from sin, and it is not the main element in the gospel salvation. Why was the infant Messiah to be called Jesus? because he would save his people from their sins. Matthew 1.21 The Bible does not anywhere teach any other or any different view than this. Remarks 1. 
This text alone, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ, most fully justifies the expectation of living without sin through all abounding grace. If there were no other passage pertaining to this point, this alone is enough. And for a Christian to offer only this as a reason for such a hope in him is to offer as good a reason as needs to be given. There are indeed many other passages that fully justify this belief. 2. To teach that such a belief is a dangerous error is to teach unbelief. Imagine if the Apostle Paul had added to this command that requires us to consider ourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God, this one statement. Yet, let me warn you that nobody can rationally hope to be free from sin in this world. You must remember that to entertain such an expectation as God commands in this language is a dangerous error. What would be thought of this if it were attached to Romans 6.11? No one can deny that the passage deals with sanctification. The whole question is whether Christians will continue in sin, Romans 6.1, after having been forgiven and accepted in their Redeemer. Paul labors to show that they should, and of course that they may die to sin, even as Christ died for sin. And they may also live a new life, a spiritual life, through faith in His grace, even as Christ lives a higher and more glorious life. Let me refer here to another passage in which it is said, Be ye not unequally yoked with unbelievers. What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? for ye are the temple of the living God. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Almighty. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. 2 Corinthians 6.14, 16-18, This is a very remarkable passage. Notice how the command and promise are intermingled, and how finally, upon the basis of a most glorious promise, the precept calling us to perfect holiness is established. Now, what would we think about Paul and of the divine spirit who spoke through Paul if he had immediately added, Be careful that none of you will be led by these remarks to indulge the very dangerous and erroneous expectation that you can perfect holiness or cleanse yourselves from any sin, either of flesh or spirit, in this world. Would not this have been fooling with the intelligence and Christian sense of every reader of his words through all time? Should we not account it as considerably blasphemous? It so happens that the Bible never contradicts its own teachings. But, I ask, what if it had? What if the Bible had solemnly asserted no mere human, either of himself or by any grace received in this life, has ever kept or will ever keep the commandments of God fully, but daily breaks them in thought, word, and deed. To teach that such an expectation is dangerous is a great deal worse than no teaching at all. It is much better to leave people to their own unaided reading of God's Word, for this could hardly in any case so sadly mislead them, no matter how inclined they might be to the misconception. 
Is it dangerous to expect salvation from sin? Dangerous? What does this mean? Is it dangerous to expect victory over sin? If so, what is the gospel worth? What gospel do we have that can be considered good news at all? Many people have the very opposite expectation. Far from expecting any such thing as the Apostle Paul authorizes them to expect, they know they have no such expectation. Other people even believe it is true to expect themselves to always be in sin. They depend on considering themselves not to be dead indeed unto sin, but to be somewhat alive to it through all their earthly life and somewhat alive to God through Jesus Christ. The result is that since they do not expect any such thing as complete victory over sin, they will not use any appropriate means since faith stands foremost among those means, and faith must include at least a belief that it is possible to attain that which is sought. In this and the following chapters of Romans, we have the essence of the good news of the gospel. Anyone who has been wounded and hurt by sin, with its bitter shafts sinking deep into his moral being, one who has known its bitterness and felt its poison drink up his spirit, such a person will see that there is glory in the idea of being delivered from sin. He will surely see that this deliverance is by far the greatest need of his soul, and that nothing can be compared with escaping from this body of sin and death. Look at Romans chapter 7. There you have the state of a man who is more than convinced but is really convicted. It is one thing to be convinced, and it is an even further stage of progress in the right direction to be convicted. This term implies the instrumentality of another party. The criminal on trial may be quite convinced of his guilt by the view he was compelled to take of his own case, but his being convicted is still a further step the testimony and the jury convict him. Some of you know what it is to see yourself a sinner, and yet the sight of the fact brings with it no pain, no sting. It does not cut deep into your very soul. On the other hand, some of you may know what it is to see your sins all armed like an armed man ready to pierce you through with daggers. Then you cry out as here, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Romans 7.24 You feel a piercing sting as if your soul were filled with poison, with horrible, painful venom diffusing the very agonies of hell through the depths of your soul. This is what I mean by being convicted as being a state of mind beyond being merely convinced. The darts and the strikes of sin seem really like the piercings of an arrow. As if arrows from the Almighty really did empty your spirit. When you experience this, then you can understand what the good news of the gospel is. A remedy for such anguish must be good news beyond all dispute. To know that the blood of Christ can save is indeed a salve of life to the weary soul. Place someone in this state of sharp, piercing conviction, and then let him feel that there is actually no remedy, and he sinks under the iron shafts of despair. See his agony. Tell him there can never be any remedy for his guilty soul, that he must lie there in his misery and despair forever. 
Can any state of mind be more awful? I remember a case that occurred in Reading, Pennsylvania many years ago. There was a man of hard heart and iron frame, a strong, burly man who had stood up against the revival as if he could shake off all the arrows of the Almighty, even as the mastodon of which the tradition of the Native Americans says shook off all the arrows of the warriors from his brow and felt no harm. So he stood. But he had a praying wife and a praying sister, and they gathered their souls in the might of prayer close about him, as a party of men would close in on a wild bull in a net. Soon it was apparent that an arrow from the quiver of the Almighty had pierced between the joints of his harness and had taken hold of his innermost heart. He was in agony then. It was night, dark and intensely cold. It seemed that he absolutely could not live. They sent for me to come and see him. I went. While yet a few hundred yards from his house, I heard his screams and wailings of woe. It made me feel dreadfully solemn. It seemed so much like the echoes of the pit of hell. I reached the house and saw him there on the floor, rolling in his agony and wailing as is rarely heard on this side of the pit of despair. As cold as the weather was, he was sweating like rain, every part of his frame being in a most intense perspiration. Oh, his groans, and to see him gnaw his tongue because of the pain. This gives us some idea of the doom of the damned. I thought that if this is only conviction of sin, what must hell be like? But he could not bear to hear anything about sin. His conscience was already full of it and had brought out the dreadful things of God's law so as to leave nothing more to be done in that direction. I could only put Christ before him and simply hold his mind to the view of Christ alone. This soon brought relief. Suppose, though, that I had nothing else to say except, Mr. B., there is no help possible for your case. You can wail on and on, but no being in the universe can help you. He has fire enough in his burning soul already. It seems to him that no hell of fire can possibly be worse than this. How perfectly chilling and horrible for people to oppose the idea of expecting deliverance from sin, and yet talk calmly of continuing in sin all the rest of their earthly days. An elder I knew once rose in a meeting and told the Lord he had been living in sin so far and expected to continue in sin as long as he lived. He said that he had sinned today and would undoubtedly sin tomorrow, and so on. Yet he talked as calmly about it as if it were foolish to make any fuss, as well as impossible to attempt any change for the better. Think of that. To talk of all this calmly. How horrible to talk quite calmly of living alone in sin all the rest of his days. Suppose a wife would say to her husband, I love you some, but you know that I love many other men too, and that I find it pleasant to indulge myself with them. You certainly must be aware that all women are frail creatures and are likely to fall continually, and indeed you know that I expect to fall more or less as it may happen every day that I live. Certainly you will not expect from me anything as unrealistic and extreme as flawless virtue. You know that none of us have any idea of being perfect in this life, 
We don't believe in any such thing. Let me ask you to look at this woman and hear what she has to say. Can you hear her talk this way without having your soul filled with horror? What? Is this woman a wife? And does she think and talk this way about marital fidelity? Yet this is not to be compared in shocking sin and treason with the case of the Christian who says, I expect to sin every day I live, and who says this with indifferent unconcern. You expect to be a traitor to Jesus each day of your life, to crucify him again each day, to put him each day to an open shame, to every day dishonor his name, grieve his heart, and bring sorrow and shame upon all who love Christ's cause? Yet you talk about having a good hope through grace? Every true Christian should say, do not let me live at all if I cannot live without habitual sin. For how can I bear to go on day after day sinning against him whom I love so much? Those who are really opposed to this idea are either very ignorant of what the gospel is, or they are unrepentant and do not care to be delivered from their sins. At best, they are guilty of great unbelief. Into which of these classes those who oppose this doctrine may fall is a question for themselves to settle between their own consciences and God. There are two distinct views of salvation held among professed Christians, and correspondingly, there are two distinct classes of professing Christians often embraced within the same church. The one class of people regard the gospel as salvation from sin. They think more of this and value it more than the hope of heaven or of earth either. The most important thing with them is to realize the idea of deliverance from sin. This constitutes the charm and glory of the gospel. They seek this more than to be saved from hell. They care more by far to be saved from sin itself than from its punitive consequences. Of the latter, they think and pray only a little. It is their glory and joy that Christ is sent to deliver them from their bondage and iniquity, to lift them up from their miserable condition and give them the liberty of love. They labor to realize this. To them, this is the good news of gospel salvation. The other class of people are mostly anxious to be saved from hell. The punishment due for sin is the thing they mainly fear. In fact, fear has been mainly the spring of their religious efforts. The gospel is not thought of as a means of deliverance from sin, but as a great system of indulgences, a great comfort to remove the fear and danger of damnation while still leaving them in their sin. I do not by any means imply that they will call their system of gospel faith a system of indulgences. The name will undoubtedly be an offense to them they may not have distinctly considered this point, and they may have failed to notice that in fact it is such and nothing better. They do not seem to notice that a system of salvation that removes the fear of damnation for sin, yet leaves them in their sins to live for themselves, to please themselves, and that concludes that Christ will at last bring them to heaven despite their having lived in sin all their days, must be a vast system of indulgences. Indeed, it is a compromise on a most magnificent scale. By virtue of it, the whole church is expected to trudge on in sin through life 
and be no less sure of heaven at last. These opposite views are so prevalent and so apparent that you will see them everywhere as you go around among the churches. You will find many in the church who are completely worldly and selfish. They live conformed to the world in various neglects of duty, and they expect to indulge themselves in sin more or less all the way through life. You may ask them if they think that is right, and they answer no. If you ask them why they do it then, they answer, Oh, we are all imperfect, and we can't expect to be any better than imperfect while here in the flesh. Yet, they expect to be saved from hell and to have all their sins forgiven. But how? Is it not on condition of sincerely turning away from all their sins, but on the assumption that the gospel is a vast system of indulgences, far more vast than Pope Leo X ever used and worked to comfort sinning professors in his day? In the Pope's system, the indulgences were merely for those who sinned occasionally. But this current system is for those who live in sin and know they do, and expect to live in sin as long as they live, yet expect to be saved without fail at the end. The other class of professed Christians have no expectation of being saved unless they have a pure heart and live above the world. If you talk to them about living in sin, you quickly learn that they hate and dread the very thought. To them, the poison of asps is in it. Sin is bitter to their souls. They dread it as they dread death itself. No one can go around within the church without finding these two classes as distinct in their idea of the gospel as I have described them to be. The one class of people are in agony if they find themselves even slipping, and they are especially cautious against exposing themselves to temptation. It is not so with the other class. Two ministers of the gospel were together, and one strongly urged the other to take part in a certain activity. The other declined. Why not, said the first, because I do not think myself justified in exposing myself to that and to so much temptation. But why stop for that? We expect to sin more or less always, and all we have to do is repent of it afterward. Horror-struck, the other could only say, I hold to a completely different gospel from that. Suppose a wife should say to her husband, I am determined to go to the theater. But, my dear, he said, you know bad people gather there, and you may be tempted. She replied, That does not matter. If I sin, I will repent of it afterward. The real Christian may be known by this that the very thought of being drawn into sin drives him to agony. He cannot bear the idea of living in sin, not even for one moment. You who are truly Christians, be careful about this. Be on your guard, for you may be ensnared into sin. I do not mean that you need to fear to go where God calls you, but it is a terrible thing to be ensnared into sin, and you cannot help but to feel that this is so. If you know what it is to be wounded by the arrows of sin in your soul, you will go out into apparent danger walking softly and with caution and with much prayer you will certainly be much on your guard. But if you say, Oh, if I sin, I will repent, what will I say of you? 
you will repent, will you? And do you think this will make everything right again so easily? Suppose you knew that in going away for a vacation, you would get drunk a few times and would commit one or two murders. Would you say, oh, nevertheless, I may be a good Christian. I will be careful to repent of it after it is all over. That is horrible. And you think of yourself as a good Christian? Let me tell you that a Christian who repents of sin repents of it as sin. He makes no such discriminations as between a little secret sin and a big sin such as a murder. He knows no such distinction between sins that will allow him to commit the one kind without guilt and to shy away from the other. With him, anything that grieves God is a horrible thing. Regarding anything that displeases God, he cries out, Ah, God will see it. It will grieve his heart. How it will affect God. This is all that matters to him. Someone who knows what it is to appear guilty of sin before God, and then who knows also what it is to be delivered from this condition, will understand how the Christian should feel in circumstances of temptation when he feels himself in danger of sinning. His hair all stands on end. How awful to sin against God! Therefore, anything that seems likely to bring him into danger will stir up his soul within him and put him on his guard. The unbelief of the church as to what they may receive from Christ is the great stumbling block hindering themselves and others from experiencing deliverance from sin. Not only is this a great curse and a great hardship of professing Christians, but it is also a great heartache to Jesus Christ. Many people seem to have hardened their hearts against all expectation of being delivered from sin. They have heard the doctrine preached. They have seen some profess to be in this state of salvation from sin. But they have also seen some of this group fall again. And now they willingly reject the entire doctrine. But is this consistent with really embracing the gospel? What is Christ to the believer? What was his errand into the world? What is he doing and what is he attempting to do? He has come to break the power of sin in the heart and to be the life of the believer, working in him a continual salvation from sin and wanting to bring him in this way, and only in this way, to heaven at last. What is faith except the actual giving yourself up to Christ that he may do this work for you and in you? What are you to believe of Christ if not that he is to save his people from their sins? Can you tell of anything else? Does the Bible tell you to expect something different and less than this? The fact is that it has been the great stumbling block to the church that this has not been well understood. The common experience of nominal Christians has misrepresented and twisted the truth. The multitudes forming their views much more from this experience than from the Bible or at best applying this experience to interpret the Bible, have adopted exceedingly defective, even false, opinions as to the nature and design of the gospel. They seem to completely forget that Paul, writing to Christians at Rome, assures them that if they are under grace, sin will not have dominion over them. Romans 6.14 when Christians do not expect this blessing from Christ, they will not get it. 
while they expect as little as they usually do, it is no wonder they get so little. According to their faith, and not ever very much beyond it, do they need to expect to receive. It is often the case that sanctification is held as a theory, while the mind does not yet by any means embrace the truth in love. The situation is similar to that of unrepentant sinners who hold in theory that they must have a new heart. They profess to believe this, but do they really understand it? No. Suppose it were revealed to their minds so that they would really see it as it is. Would they not see a new thing? Would they not be startled to see how completely far they are, while unrepentant, from being acceptable to God, and how great the change they must experience before they can enter the kingdom? It is the same regarding sanctification. Although this class of people profess to believe it in theory, yet the passages of Scripture that describe it do not enter into their experience. They do not see the whole truth. If they were to see the whole truth and would then reject it, I believe it would be in them the unpardonable sin. When the Spirit of God discloses to them the real meaning of the gospel and they deliberately reject it, how can the sin be less than what the Scriptures represent as the unpardonable sin? Having once been enlightened and having received the knowledge of the truth that they might be saved, but then turning back, is it not impossible from then on for them to be renewed again to repentance? Hebrews 6, 4-6 one thing at least must be said. There is a danger that many professing Christians of our day do not seem to realize. Having so much light before the mind as they actually have in regard to the provisions made in the gospel for present sanctification, they then reject this light practically and live still in sin as if the gospel made no provision to save the Christian from his sins. Into this terrible danger, many people rush blindly to their own destruction.